Well, you can open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. We are continuing our Galatians series. And um, yeah, it's been really good. Uh, Even just last week, the um, interactive and kind of sharing our testimony, I think it was just really helpful for myself and uh, hopefully for you as well. Also, can we thank like Levi and all the work he's been doing uh, with uh, just coordinating all the worship and leading so well over the past uh, few months? Yeah, with one foot too. And you see him up here uh, leading, but throughout the week he's also uh, putting together the set. He's coordinating with the team and uh, just being really intentional and um, even showing up early to set up. So just thankful for Levi. So if you see him, let him know how much um, God has worked through him for you. So uh, Galatians 2 is kind of a tricky, tricky passage. There's some sections in there that was like, man, I got to read this like a bunch of times to even comprehend what he's saying. So let's start with prayer and uh, ask the Lord to open our hearts to hear the word. Lord, we thank you so much uh, for who you are and uh, what you've done through Jesus and um, just his work on the cross to save sinners like us. We're so grateful would you just be working through your word tonight uh, to open our hearts to hear what you have to say, Lord. Speak through your word, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Suppose that you are a broke college kid, as a good chunk of us probably are, but you're so broke, in fact, that you, um, you've got rent due coming next month, you've got tuition due coming in a couple months, and you're like, you got $50 for your name. So you're like, I don't have any idea how I'm going to pay for all of this. Now, suppose I give you a thousand bucks. It's not a thousand bucks, just for clarification there. And um, what are your guys' response to that? What are you going to do with it? What's kind of your mindset? What did you say? Spend it. Spend it on what? Okay, that's very logical. Yes, absolutely. Perfect. Yes. There you go. Oh, wow. Diversified portfolio. Okay, so yes, Stan. Oh, that's brilliant. Woo! Let's go. Yes, Addy. Okay, so coffee. So you might, you might use it for maybe not its intended purpose. And uh, anybody else? Okay, so... When I, if I was given a thousand bucks, I would immediately feel like, oh my goodness, like I gotta like do something. I would buy them coffee, like I would buy the person coffee, and I'd be like, I, I, I promise I'll pay you back in like a couple years. And so, the few responses, like like uh, like we said, like we can we can use it for its intended purpose of paying rent. We could uh, blow it all on coffee or spring break tickets. That's not blowing it, I guess. You go to Shields buy hunting equipment. You could, um, or you could, you know, pay them back over time. And so I think this, the text we're looking at today is answering the question, so we have the gift of salvation for those of us who have faith in Christ. We have salvation. We have that gift. But what do we do as we live beyond that, from salvation to our death or till the Lord returns? How do we handle the gift that God has been given us and live the rest of our lives. So I think that's what this text tells us. 
And it kind of breaks down into two sections. Uh, verses 1 through 14 is kind of a case study. Kind of Paul reviewing the rest of his story and his story with Peter. And kind of showing how two of these, the kind of like, can we work? Can we, um, do we have to earn God's favor in response to the gift he's given us? And the gospel, which is, spoiler alert, no, we don't. And then uh, the latter part of the text, 15 through 21, is a commentary on that. So we're going to start off in uh, verse 1 of chapter 2 in Galatians. It says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So what is he doing? He's taking Barnabas and uh, Titus. They're going to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was like the headquarters for the church at the time. The apostles, the disciples were all staying there, uh, setting up camp. So Paul comes back and he's like, okay, I just want to make sure I'm clear. I've got the gospel. Like chapter one, like he's telling the Galatians, like if you hear someone preaching the gospel to you, anything that other, other than I have presented you, then let him be a curse. So he's like, I got to make sure I'm on the right page. And like, I don't know if you've guys been in class before and you're working on a problem and everybody else is getting different answers. And you just have that feeling of like, I think I know this, what I'm doing, but like, am I even on the right track? And so Paul is kind of doing the same thing. He's like, everybody else is, is talking about like, we got to have circumcision. We got to follow the Old Testament law as believers. And that's not the gospel. So he's checking in with the leaders in the church in Jerusalem to make sure, like, I'm on the right track. And so, verse 3, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us to slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So here we have the clash of those who are for circumcision, for the Old Testament law, like we got to follow that. And Paul, he's like, no, we have freedom in Christ. They clash. Paul's like, I love this because, in, as I said a minute ago, he's like, let him be a curse if you're preaching a gospel contrary. And he's like, and I'm standing my ground against these guys. And so I just love that, um, that Paul is holding fast to the true gospel. And so in verse 6, And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. So he was on the right track. He was like, I am preaching the true gospel. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So you see this unity. The leaders in Paul, they're united together for the gospel, faith alone, Christ alone, nothing else added. So you see that unity. But then we read about Peter going to Antioch, which is where Paul, I guess, was staying. So, but when Cephas came to Antioch, 
I oppose him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So Peter went to Antioch. He was doing ministry there. He was fellowshipping with all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, you know, eating with them, having conversations with them, engaging his friends would. And then certain people came from Jerusalem, and he's like, hmm, I've got these people who think differently than me. Like, they think you've got to follow the law uh, in order as a believer. And so he slowly starts pulling back uh, from his fellowship with the Gentiles. And I'm sure we've all experienced, like, friends who, who you're, like, really tight with, but then after a little bit of time, you're like, I haven't seen them around very much lately, and they just kind of seem more distant. That's what Peter was doing uh, to the Gentile Jew- believers. And so uh, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. Now, Peter was like an apostle. He was like the guy who in Acts 2 preached to thousands of people, saw thousands of people get saved. Like He has a lot of power. And so this this move of, of, of having fear of men had negative consequences for the church. The church divided in Antioch, and there was this division, the Jews and the Gentiles not having fellowship with each other. Um, and so Paul sees this, and he stands up, and when he saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? He's saying, if you, Peter, you're a Jew, and, and you're like over here before these other Jews came, you're, you're having fellowship with the Gentiles, you're interacting with them, living out the gospel, and then when these Jews come in, you're separating and be like, actually, we got to uphold the law. Like, you're a hypocrite. Like, these things don't add up, they can't, they don't work together. And so he challenges him in public. And I think the public uh, challenging shows us that this is a very important issue. It'd be like if Pastor Travis on a Sunday morning was like, Pastor Todd, you're preaching heresy, repent. <laughs> like that's a big deal. And it better be a big deal if you're doing that in front of like the whole church. And so I think it means that we need to take into consideration like what is the problem here and um, how we should actually live out our salvation in light of the gospel. So we're going to spend the rest of our time in the last verses of chapter 2, and we're going to find, see two ditches that we tend to fall into, and then the road that actually we should walk in as a follower of Christ. So the first ditch we see is legalism, which basically just means you're trying to, by your own strength and power, work uh, and for the approval of God. Verses 15 and 16, we ourselves are Jews by birth, and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. There's a lot of words there. Uh, justified is one of the big words there. So what does justified mean? It's, uh, it means to declare righteous. So if, if I'm the judge and y'all are sitting here in court for, on trial for, I don't know, robbing a bank or whatever, 
uh, and I find one of you guilty, I'm be like, you're guilty. That's declaring you guilty. That's condemnation. But if I'm like, no, you're, you're in the clear. You're innocent. You're righteous. I justified you, declaring you righteous and innocent. Um, so he identifies two ways that we are justified. He says, justified by the works of the law and justified through faith in Jesus Christ. And he clearly says a person is not justified by works of the law. So what that means is there's nothing that we can do that can uh, make us right before God. We, do we make us right before God, or does God make us right before God? Works of the law is what he says we are not. So that means faith in Jesus Christ. It is only God who can make us right before him, and that he did that through Jesus Christ, who took on all our sin. He lived the perfect life, died on the cross, was buried and rose again. And it's belief in that to take away our sins that, that we can be justified and viewed before God. So he looks at us on Judgment Day and says, I see Jesus, good work and sacrifice in your place. You are free and you are righteous. Nothing that we have done. And yet, I think our culture lends itself to this, but we, we have this like inner struggle of like, but I need to do something. Like I can't accept this free gift because it's like, man, everything in our culture says, well, you got to earn it. You put in 40 hours in your job, you get a paycheck. You put in good work at school, you get a good grade. You want something at the store, you give money. Everything we have is because of something that we did, and this is different. And so we're like, what do we do with this? And so I think it's really important to look at verse 21 here. It says, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If we could earn ourselves approval before God, then there would be no reason for Christ to die. Because if there was another way, then why, why do we need Jesus? Like, if we can do it ourselves, there's no reason for Jesus. And so... I like the way Stan put it to me earlier this week. Is like when we're working through, like trying to prove God's favor, uh, earn God's favor. Like we're trying to work Christ out of a job. He already did it all. Like we don't need to do it. And so, looking at our life, how do we try to earn God's approval? Some churches, I think, are a little bit more obvious. Like maybe some. Older churches, like you got to go to church in a suit and tie and uh, carry your big Bible and go to church. And if you don't do that, well, I don't know, God be with you, <laughs> you know. But then maybe in our lives, how does that look like? I think we put a lot of emphasis on devotions and time with the Lord, which is fantastic. But I think we also often make turn it into a checklist. Like, oh, I read two chapters of the Bible, spent five minutes in prayer, uh, memorized a couple verses, went to church, like check, check, check. You can't turn it into a checklist because nothing that you do earns you favor with God. And so we must surrender to God's grace and let his work on the cross um, be the sole reason we can stand before God. And so let's look at the second ditch. So the first was legalism, trying to earn favor with God. The second is the other extreme, abusing God's grace. Here we see, well, if, I, if God's grace covers all my sins, then whew, I'm going to just go ahead and 
party up. I'm going to live an immoral life. I'm going to just sin in every way possible. And so he addresses that. Um, he's in 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified or made righteous in Christ, we too were to be found sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. And so he asks, like, is Christ promoting sin? Is he encouraging sin? Is he a minister of sin and the cross and giving us the free gift of grace? And to the answer, he says, definitely not. Um, when, we, when we just rely on God's grace to excess like that and abuse it, we're minimizing his work on the cross because we don't realize the weight of God becoming man and dying on the cross for our sins. And we, we minimize the cost that was. He bore all the sins of the world, and yet we just keep on adding it and adding it when we just live a life of abusing God's grace. Hebrews uh, 10, 26, and 27 challenges this thought as well. It says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. If you're a professing believer in Christ and you're living a life of abusing God's grace, thinking that God's grace is going to cover your sins, so I'm just going to keep on sinning and sinning and sinning, that's a scary place to be. You need to check your heart because this is saying there is judgment. And I don't know people's hearts. I don't know who has believed and who hasn't. But if, if you're not bearing the fruits of a life changed by Christ, the Holy Spirit working inside of you, then that should cause you to think and be like, well, maybe I'm not who I think I am. Maybe I'm destined for judgment. It was a scary place to be in. I think of like a rebellious child and like, the parents are loving them and just caring for them, and they just turn their backs on, on their parents because they're like, well, my parents will keep on loving me. They, they, they've raised me up, and they just kind of ignore all the hard work that the parents did in raising them and, and the love that they showed them, and the rebellious child just keeps on running. I, I don't want that for me. I don't want that for any of us to be abusing God's grace in that way. But then he says in that next verse, I if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. And the truth is, none of us are perfect. No Christian is perfect. Like We are changed by God, yes, but we still keep on sinning. And when we do, it's a reminder that we still need Jesus. We never can outgrow Jesus. Like Jesus paid for our sins, past, present, and future, and we definitely have sins in the future. And every time we sin, it's a reminder, yes, Lord, I do need you. I can never outgrow you. I can never run, run from your love. And so part of some of the more extreme examples of grace abusing is living a completely immoral life and being like, yeah, I go to church like a couple times a year. It's probably fine. God's grace covers that. But what's, what's more subtle ways that we might see in our own walk? might be just letting sin slide, just watching porn that one time. Just I was tired. 
Maybe it's cheating on an exam just that one time, like, I was busy. Maybe it's telling one lie, like, God's grace will cover it. But the more we do that, the more we're just keeping sin up on our Savior and forgetting the fact of what He has done for us. In my own life, um, just failing, I was failed to spend time with the Lord like I should over the past few years. Like, just got busy with life, and I prioritized my work, I prioritized my job, I prioritized time at church, and just let my time with the Lord and personal devotions slide. And that hurt me. Like, I, there were seasons of not growth and defeat, and it was not great. Um, and my excuse was like, I'm doing so much things at the church, like, surely God's grace can cover my failure of spending time with Him every day. And it does, but that's a terrible way to think about it. It's a terrible way to be a rebellious child and abuse God's grace. So the two ditches, illegalism, uh, seeking to work ourselves for God's favor, and uh, abusing God's grace, not realizing the uh, heftiness of the price that, God, that Christ paid for us. So what is the way that we should live our life? It's uh, following the freedom of Christ. Verse 20. Verse 19, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. In uh, verse 19, he says, I died to the law so that I might live to God. And there's this imagery of death to something and life to something else. He dies to the law, and later he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. And so he has, he's died to the law, and he's died to his ego. He no longer has to work trying to prove himself to God because God loves us unconditionally through Christ. And Romans 8.1 says there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And why? Because Jesus says in Matthew 5.11 that he has fulfilled the law. The, the mandates of the law, which was God's way of saying, Moses and the Israelites, like, do these things and I'll have a relationship with you. And so the sacrifices, the priests, the, the dietary laws, all of them find their satisfaction and their fulfillment and completeness in Christ. Because Christ was the perfect sacrifice that bulls and goats could never save everybody. He was the perfect priest who didn't have the sin that he had to pay for first. He, he administered his own sacrifice as a perfect man, as a perfect God, and was able to apply that to everybody. The entire law finds its fulfillment and completion in Christ. And so we are freed from the law. There's no condemnation for us anymore. That's why, that's why Paul is like, no, we don't have to do the circumcision. We don't have to follow the Old Testament law because Christ has freed us from that. 
And so then he says we have life in Christ. We, Christ lives in us. And this is called union with Christ. And what it means is Christ is in us through the Holy Spirit and vice versa. We're in Christ. And so when Christ was crucified and raised to life, we also, in a sense, were crucified with him, dying to our former selves and raising to life uh, in a new heart, new life. And that's what baptism represents, you know. Uh, buried in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Just that picture of we with Christ died to our former selves and now have a new generated heart. And so what does life with Christ practically look like? I think this, this picture helps, helps me understand a little bit. Um, so if our life is on this, this line... We got time going this way. At a certain point, for those who believe in Christ, we're, we were saved. We have our salvation. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit enters our hearts and starts working in us, changing us, convicting us of sin. And so down here, we have our sin represented. The longer we are with Christ, the more he's wor- uh, the Holy Spirit's working in us. We become greater and greater aware of our sin and our depravity, and um, the effects it has. And then on this side, we also have a greater awareness of God's holiness. And the more we become aware of God's holiness in our sin, the more we realize there is just a giant gap. Like here, when we're saved, we're like, God, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, in need of you. And so we understand that God is greater than our sin. And yet, as the longer we are, the more the Holy Spirit is working in us, the more this gap just widens. And so, what do we do with that gap? If we're we're trying to earn God's approval through legalism, we're going to see that our sin just keeps getting worse. And we're like, man, I keep trying to fix this. I keep trying to to overcome my sin and, and be more like God. And I keep on getting farther and farther away, and it's depressing. It leads to despair. But if we're, if we're abusing God's grace, then we're the ones driving our sin further down, you know? And, and just further away from God's holiness and failing to realize the price that Christ paid for us. But through the Holy Spirit's conviction in our life in Christ, we realize that it's Christ who continues to uh, bring us back to God. It's Christ who's the focal point. It's Christ who we become more and more thankful for, more and more in love with when we realize the depth of our sin and the greatness of God. It's Christ we have more and more appreciation for and thankfulness for. And so it comes back to Christ and a love and a thankfulness for him. I just love this phrase in verse 20. Paul just gets so personal with it. He says, The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. At this point, Paul's not saying, Hey, Galatians, like God loved y'all, God, God died for y'all, and all that. He's like, No, no, no. God died for me. God died and saved Jack Patterson. 
God died and saved for each one of you who believe. And he loves and he cares for you. And this gratitude, which we just see like as we grow in maturity and just realize the depths of our sin grows greater every day. But Christ is still sufficient. Christ is still there for us. And so we just are overwhelmed with emotion and love and thankfulness, which leads us to our actions and obedience. It's because of this love and thankfulness that we can start sharing the gospel with others, sharing what Jesus has done in our lives because we're overwhelmed with thankfulness. We can't help but share it. I love me a good peppermint milkshake from Chick-fil-A, and I will tell anybody on the street about it. And the Lord, he's done a work in my heart, so I need to have the same overflow of, man, I just need to tell everybody about Christ. It helps us in fighting sin because the greater we realize that our sin and just the greater depths of it, the more we realize, oh, Lord, I don't want to throw more sin on you. I don't want to keep adding to that weight. And so we fight sin, not because we were trying to earn God's favor, but because we love Christ. And that's the natural response. And that's why if I gave Pat the $1,000 for just help him out of misery of the college student life, he's going to put it to good use. He's going to invest in stocks. He's going to pay his rent out of thankfulness because he's like, there's no way I could pay his back. And I don't want to keep on taking money from Jack. Like, and so it's the same idea of like the more we realize the vastness of our separation from God, the more we realize that Jesus covered it all. And we're just overwhelmed with thankfulness and gratitude, which leads us to action. So don't try to work for God's approval. Because he already loves you unconditionally because of his son, Jesus. Don't abuse the grace of God, just living a life of sin, because he paid a hefty price for you. But embrace the Spirit's work in your life, living in the freedom of Christ, just obeying what he says out of a heart of love and thankfulness.